welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, everyone, and um, I'm Harvey Asher, a sexaholic, been sexually sober uh, 37 years and 10 months. As I said to the group, uh, I was hoping this went okay because I just came down with COVID. Yes, I did have my three vaccines. (laughs) And this is my fourth day. So we'll see what happens. But the topic we're talking about is the fourth tradition and the fourth step. And let me tell you what a perfect subject with my getting COVID. I was convinced I was invincible. I had my three vaccines. No way. And I watched what happened when I that test turned positive. What happened was what we're going to see in the fourth tradition and the fourth step from the 12 and 12. We're only using the 12 and 12 to deal with the fourth step and the fourth tradition. Uh, Because being invincible is exactly what my disease did to me with my ego. I wasn't going to get caught I wouldn't get get venereal diseases. I wouldn't give my wife venereal diseases. I was invisible. No one could see me where I went and what I did. That ego is amazing. And today we're going to talk hopefully about how this step in the tradition helps us to get that ego smaller. So we're going to begin with the way that I like to begin. Because it has nothing to do with my talking. And sometimes not even to our hearing other than into our heart. So Daniel's going to play a song for us that will hopefully represent what we're doing today. Unwritable wrong 
is our quest, an impossible dream. What is that quest to get our ego smaller, and yet we can't make the ego get smaller? This will be using our ego to make the ego get smaller. And so this quest is going to be talked about some today through the fourth tradition and the fourth step. But interestingly enough, the fourth tradition tells us as much, if not more, about the ego problem than actually the fourth step in it <laughs> because it talks and Daniel, can you put up that iceberg picture? You have it? This is the fake out. All we do is see the lust. The lust, the lust. <laughs> Well, when we come in the program, we get sober and we're willing to go to any length. Lust does not become a big issue every day. What brings us back to the lust that's always there? It will never 
cellularly go away, which we'll talk about in a while. But it's not the lust. It's the character defects. And look at that iceberg. That iceberg is massive. The lust is only a tiny part of it. But it's submerged under the water. Okay, so let's talk about the fourth tradition. How can I bring <laughs> character defects into the fourth tradition? So let's actually read what it says. Tradition four. It says, each group should be autonomous except matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. What the heck does that have to do with character defects? You think COVID's affected my brain <laughs> to think there's a connection? Well, it's a very tiny chapter. It's one of the smallest chapters, only a few pages. And yet, I bet more than half of that chapter is about this ego-driven man who had a wonderful AA group, and he was a real promoter, and he talked the group into getting a foundation and building a three-story building, and each floor would cater to other issues of alcoholism, all through that AA group. And someone said, don't you think you better check this out with the AA Foundation? He said, nah, but he did it anyway. And the foundation said, we don't advise it, but there were no rules against it. So he went about it, developed so many corporations to take care of everything, raised the money, got the building set up, and it got so confusing that he needed 61 rules to keep everything coordinated in that building under the name of an AA group. Finally, when the whole thing collapsed, he wrote the foundation a letter. And in that letter, he said, they opened it up and they were surprised it had not much in it. And it just said, rule number 62, don't take yourself so seriously. Our ego does exactly 
what happened five days ago to me. I wasn't going to come down with COVID. I had all the shots. <laughs> that ego distorts any sense of reality. Because it's merely between my ears. So let's switch a bit to step to the step four. Why did I call this an impossible quest? An impossible dream. And yet we get courage to pursue it. Because without our natural instincts that step four talks about over and over again in the 12 and 12, without natural instincts that happen to live in the ego, in the self-consciousness, not our real self, perhaps, not perhaps, not our only self, what happens? Well, what happens is without ego, meaning without instincts, the world would collapse. Can you imagine in caveman times if some caveman looked out and saw a cave down the road that had fire in it, if he didn't get jealous and say, I want that fire for my house, nothing would progress. What if we didn't have sexual desire? <laughs> you and I wouldn't be here. My wife was always convinced she came from, who knows, <laughs> but not from what people do. <laughs> and one day we had a rude awakening. I won't go into it all, but it's a cute story. And we live in this distortion that the world isn't surviving because it's sex. Yes, that's the survival basis. Now, let's use me as an example. I'm a, um, an aggressive, assertive guy. If I weren't aggressive and assertive, do you think I'd be giving the zoo? Talks. <laughs> See, that's never changed in me. What changed was the direction. In other words, many of you have heard me say this. Before I came into the program, all I wanted to do was seduce men and women for sex. Before I came into the program, all I wanted to do is talk about sex. 
before I came into the program. I just wanted to hang around other people who were wild about sex. Look at me 37 years later. I'm still seducing you, but for recovery. Same exact natural instinct, but in a different direction. And look at me. What am I doing? I'm talking to people who only like to talk about sex. <laughs> Come on, loosen up, group. We're not in a cemetery. Come on. <laughs> Face it. We feel comfortable in SA because we're among people who understand us. So I haven't changed me. The program has changed my direction. We call it self-will run riot. Natural instincts that have gone wild. Can you imagine if people did not want a bigger television, let's say, or a nicer prayer book or something? They never have to go to work without jealousy and envy. We'd never get out of our houses or our kids would be starving. So this concept that so many people have in recovery is when a character defect shows up, oh my God, and they go into shame and how awful, and look, I got to get rid of it, it's terrible. It's not shame when you discover a character defect. It's called an awakening. A spiritual awakening. People are so afraid of the fourth step. Anything they discover, they start shaming themselves about. Instead of saying, thank God I see a new aspect of me. Now, once I see it, I can't change. So shaming yourself over it doesn't work. That's why we have the sixth and seventh step. I say this over and over because people, it says this, these are the steps that divide the men to the boys. Or I paraphrase it. What does that ultimately mean? It's when you finally say, I see all this, I see it, but I can't change it. God, you take it. It's yours, whatever that means. 
So does God come and pluck it out of us? Depends how you want to think about God. But I know one thing that works. I have surrendered and said, no, I can't make it happen. Once that surrender comes in, lo and behold, we begin to change. If we stay sober, it's hard to change when I'm drunk. Why is that? Because when you're drunk, you're constantly going through withdrawal. And when you're going through withdrawal, time after time, the brain is so inundated with all these chemicals we get from the addiction that nothing much will work. And I've said in the past few weeks, if you think this program will stop you from acting out, you're wrong. You stop acting out for 24 hours, and then the program helps prevent you from reacting out. In AA, they say it so freely. First, you have to put a plug in the junk. To go to any length for the next 24 hours. To not to act out and with the help of the fellowship, not to act in with your fantasy. So these character defects are based on a few things that make it self-will run riot. It's usually related to fear. Underneath it all, we're told in the big book and the 12 and 12, especially in the 12 and 12, it emphasizes this fear. In the big book, a lot of it's in brackets. Where after every, after the third column, you see the little word bracketed fear. Fear, I'm going to lose what I have. And fear, I'm not going to get what I want. It's that simple. So what happens in people's minds, oh, if I let go of lust, which is sex too for people who aren't in the program. What will be left of me? What will I be like without it? It's fear. I had a very difficult in my early years experience of in my recovery because I had so many sexual fantasies being with my wife 
and my mind said, I'm not, I'm going to say this generally, because I don't want to be explicit right now. My mind would say, Harvey, it won't work if you don't have a fantasy. And no matter what we're told about men and women, and women will have to speak for themselves, if something doesn't work for a man, nothing's going to happen. And this fear, God, I can't let go of lust. I'll never be able to have sex again. Man, I must have gone through this now 36, 37 years ago, and it's still so real in my mind. And one day I finally said, God, I can't live with this. If that's what's going to happen, so be it. It wasn't the issue. It was what my ego of fear was fearing. This lust, thoughts have nothing to do with a reaction, a body reaction. Certain phenomes, certain things. My God, my sponsor would say, Harvey, what are you talking about? Rabbits do it. Rabbits do it. We make such a big deal. Who was it? Cole Porter wrote, bees do it, birds do it. Even I forgot to how it goes. <laughs> let's do it. Let's fall in love. Wouldn't that be nice? To have the emphasis on love, not the fear. The fear of what if I give too much money away? Will I have enough to live? Whatever it is. And most of us have this great fear that we will never get enough. Why? Because we don't believe we are enough. I'm, I'm okay. This God doesn't make crap. By the way, these are such difficult concepts to acknowledge that our character defects are not who we are. They're just what happened with a sick brain and how it went self-will run right. So I'm going to keep it short so we can have more time for, for questions. Um, I think the part I want to leave with you is for a change of perception of discovering 
my character defects is not an issue of shame, but it's a spiritual awakening. Seeing something I've never seen before and not running from it, but embracing it. Harvey, you're a loud, aggressive guy. Harvey, you put your foot in your mouth time and again. Harvey, you upset people at times. <laughs> and to embrace it, okay. Now, this is what happens with many of us. I'm a good example. I'm short in a statue. Because I could not become a famous basketball player because I was short, did not mean I was an inadequate person. It just meant I wasn't going to be a very successful basketball player, but I was able to be a successful professional in a profession I chose. See, when we embrace ourselves, including that our brain is not like normal men or women. Normal men and women can lust. Normal men and women can drink alcohol. I can't drink alcohol successfully. Does that make me less of an adequate person? Hell no. And in a vision for you, it says it so beautifully. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Until we could love and embrace ourselves, we will be going in circles and circles, living in shame, which is another form of fear. Fear that I can't, I screw up, that I don't do it right. So I'm going to end with this little story from the other day. Um, as you know, as you hear me talk about it periodically, my wife and I are hooked on Korean soap operas. <laughs> they, they don't have overt sex in the soap operas. They don't, I mean, <laughs> take some eight episodes, maybe they could kiss one time. And we were watching one the other day about a very wealthy man whose wife had died. And he was left with these three kids and he was very strict and trying to make them the best he could. And this young poor gal came in as a tutor and was trying to teach him something. And, um, You know, it was entertaining to watch it. 
yesterday out of nowhere. It happened the day before, yesterday out of nowhere. I decided to text my 11 grandchildren a message, a love message. I've never done it before. I'm a love cripple. Where did that come from? It was always there. Something clicked deep inside me that let those two things join together, where my action was able to follow my faith of what? My faith in the program. If I just do what I'm told to do, somehow it gets better. And the it is not what's outside. This outside turns to crap time and again. You're going to lose your jobs. You're going to lose this. People die. We get sick. All kinds of things. But it gets better. Our perception, our ability to handle life on life's terms gets better. No matter how impossible the quest is, that impossible dream, with the courage to say, I will follow the program of people who have gone before me, what can I lose? But what does the ego do? It's, and it happened this morning, someone wrote me something and I answered it somewhat. Turned out they had already asked their sponsor. Why are they asking me if they've already asked their sponsor? It's a classic form of our ego. I didn't get the answer I wanted from my sponsor. I need to, to go somewhere else. That's the self-will run riot. Instead of asking your sponsor something and just surrendering to it. And if you don't want to surrender to it, don't ask him. Why ask them when you're not willing to surrender to it? Doesn't say you have to ask your sponsor everything. I sure know. I don't ask my sponsor, should I quit my job? How should he know? I don't ask my sponsor if I'm having chest pain, should I go to the emergency room or not? That's putting him in a terrible situation. But whatever I ask them, especially about family issues, or if it were about lust, I follow what he says totally. And even when he's been wrong, which has happened, 
I've had many sponsors over the years. You know, they all die on me because I picked very old sponsors. Even when they're wrong, I've won because I have submerged my ego and just surrendered to what they said. And even if it's wrong, I won as I surrender. Okay. Let's open it up. So, yeah, we're, thanks, Harvey. We're going to go for questions. If you don't want to be on the recording, uh, just send me a message in the private uh, chat and I'll ask Harvey the question. And Harvey, don't feel that we, you, you need to go on too long if you get tired because they, you do have COVID today. Uh, and while we're waiting for the first question, I have a question. Um, uh, talking around fear, I think that uh, I, I, I know that I am a complete emotional cripple. And very often when I hear talks about fear, when I hear old-timers sharing their experience with fear, there's been a few, a few recently, and today, again, I got glimpses of it. I know that basically fear drives all of my, uh, all, all of my decisions ultimately that are not, that if, it's either, if, it, I'm either choosing, choosing God's path or I'm choosing fear's path. Um. And I brought up that I'm an emotional cripple because I don't have a strong awareness of that in my day-to-day. -day. I can't tangibly touch it. And I know that this isn't an intellectual experience. I have to experience it. But I just wondered if you have any thoughts or just anything to say about that in terms of, you know, becoming more in touch with the fact that it's fear that's driving me. Well, I like to make it a little bigger. There are only three things that are written about in Chapter 5 in the AA book. One is fear, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. We step on the toes of others and they retaliate. Resentment the number one offender, and sex. Those are the only three things in Chapter 5. I'm sure someone will text me that I wasn't that accurate, but it's okay. It's the main thing that I'm used to being corrected. <laughs> now, why is it what was the miracle, the mystery? These people in 1935, 36, 37 knew something that did not really come out, obviously, in science for the next 10 years. It was the fight or flight concept. I have a damage in the part of my brain. There's a little computer chip in there deep down and it regulates fight or flight, which is fear or anger. It regulates sexual reproduction. It regulates thirst and it regulates eating. One other thing called temperature. But those five things are in that tiny little area 
I'm damaged there. So the lust might go down and then the anger will go up. Or that anger goes down and I start eating too much. Or drinking too much. Now, what I tell you could be wrong, but let me tell you the comfort I have knowing I didn't cause this. That I am not a normal man. And many of, many people in the program are on medication that regulates serotonin. By the way, I do not speak for SA in any way. These are all my personal opinions. I also, this is not an essay meeting. This is a workshop I'm giving, playing you music from Broadway shows. <laughs> this is the first one I've used, the first music that Rogers and Hammerstein did not write. This was another composer. Now, what is this music bit? Music bypasses somehow that part of my brain. It seems to be damaged. It bypasses somehow my intellect. See, we're all confused. We think if we're just smart enough, we could get this program. Well, in AA, they say, you can't be too dumb to get this program, but you could be too smart to get this program. What does that mean? It means that my addict shares the same IQ intelligence that my IQ is. So if I have a good intelligence, my IQ, my addict has a good intelligence. Except it always lies through truth. So it always wins. If I listen to my head, it will always win because it's as bright as I am, but it lies. And the classic, as we discussed some weeks ago, classic lie is, hey, if you put the alcohol in the milk, it will be okay. How can it hurt you? It will readjust the acid in your stomach. <laughs> in our program, it's that lie. The addict says to me, what will another look hurt you? How could a second look possibly hurt you? It's true. How can a, just a second look hurt me? I know how it could hurt me. The way it happened with the milk and the alcohol and the big book. Nothing will happen. I'll do fine. And I'll be able then to say, ah, 
I could take a third look. See, nothing happened. Fourth look. Then before you know it, you're following that person down the street. There's a story, I won't use names, but he tells here. He saw a gal in the car next to him, and he looked at her, and she looked at him. This is a true story. As well as I know it, the man told me. And he looked at her, and she looked at him. Their eyes met, and this was wonderful. And so she kept driving, and he followed her right to the police station. What he thought was flirtation, she was frightened out of her mind. My perception is not normal perception. Also, no perception's really normal. It's just perception. <laughs> I shared it last week about Sandy B. And he said, there are probably at least 50 people in this room, and they're all looking at me giving this talk, and they're all seeing something different. And they're hearing different things. So my disease lives in my brain, not in my genitals. This is an impossible quest. I have, but I, I have courage to keep saying it. I thank God for giving me the courage. This is not a disease of our genitals. It's a disease of our thinking. And if you think I'm making it up, why the heck doesn't it say it in the first step? It should say we are powerless over acting out. But it doesn't. It says we're powerless over lust. Hey, I might be getting better. I'm getting some of my energy back. I could hardly walk yesterday. But my ego is determined to be here. <laughs> See how ego sometimes can be helpful. Uh, if I can't laugh at myself, what a mess. So again and again. This is a clown. My sponsor 37 years ago had me buy so I could look at it every day. And he'd say, what do you do when you go to a circus? Most of you have heard this 10 times at least. What do you do when you go to a circus and you see a clown doing all kinds of crazy tricks? You laugh. He said, you're a clown, Lurk Learn to laugh at it. I'm not bad getting good. 
I'm sick getting well. Just like I'm laughing about the COVID, that I was determined that I wasn't going to get it. <laughs> Invincible Harvey. And I'll go a step further. My pride bothered me when it came down with it. Yes, I live in retirement center. And most of these people who are much older than me, they haven't gotten it. And I wanted to go in and say, see, something's wrong with me. Well, by the way, something is wrong with me. <laughs> I have a defected thinker. <laughs> oh, good to laugh. Next question. Go ahead, Dennis. There we go. All right. Thank you very much. And Harvey, thank you for doing this. I feel blessed to be here. I don't even know what kind of question this is, but you know, the best of my understanding and experience is in, in like in order for me to be in the present, like the sunlight of the spirit, my ego and self has to be deflated in that way you had talked about. But it seems on a daily basis, self intentionally like sends thoughts like fear, self delusion, self seeking that would me remove me from the present. And I use a 10 step spot check process to remove those. But what are your thoughts? Is self being intentional to regain control? Self has been doing push ups while we've been sleeping. The ego wakes up before we do. <laughs> the ego, my sponsor would explain, it's like that Greek myth, the phoenix that comes out of the ashes. They beat it down, and then every day it comes out of the ashes bigger than the day before. But he'd explain to me, that if you hang around the program and you keep doing your work, you utilize the steps, you will develop bigger tools to beat down the bigger ego. Now, I'm using ego terms to beat down. No, these are tools. Tools. What's one of my main tools today? Meditation, mindfulness. I'm able to see the ego. How could I have shared with you about my pride, and my ego, if instead of shaming myself for being embarrassed of my feeling, I was able to just observe it. And when I observe it, I could share with you. That's where our connection is. Our connection is unlike when we go to our different religions, different places, or with our friends or the government. We're always leading with our strengths. Here we connect as we're leading with our weaknesses. I don't think I ever heard a talk Roy gave us at the international conferences where he did not share some weakness he had that day or week about something that might have had to do with lust. 
always led off with a vulnerability. You know, as Jess would say over and over, we take a dirty dish and we put it in dirty water and the miracle is they both come out clean. I, this nut, call another nut in the program and we get off the phone and we're less nutty that day. How the heck does that work? That's spirituality. Now, I did want to mention about the tradition for itself, about each group is autonomous, except with matters that could injure essay as a whole. It's so subtle. By the way, if I hadn't read these, beforehand, I've missed this for years. I never saw the connection. It's, it's telling us that, yes, we are very important, but be careful that we don't try to change where our ego sets in, change something that deals with essay as a whole. That's why I keep reminding you I'm not talking for essay. And that this is not an official essay meeting. It's a workshop. And so each group is autonomous. Now you've got to be so careful because. People in certain communities get these intergroups that then start ruling the entire city. There's no such a thing. An intergroup can't tell you what to do in your own individual meeting unless it's interfering with the group as a, essay as a whole. And then the intergroup would have a right to at least notify central office to say, hey, this is what's been going on. What, what do we do from here? But my God, we get all these programmed issues. We put people as leaders. An intergroup, uh, we... <laughs> I bet it was 10 to 20 years. We, our intergroups would come and go, and our program kept growing in Nashville. So you need to be careful also of the character defects that come out within the fellowship itself. So I get a lot of complaints from around the world. This one of their old timers has totally taken over. They have to screen people and only the ones they let in could come in. And um, 
I said, stop arguing with him. Stop trying to change him. Just start a new meeting. As long as it's not con conflicting with that meeting, just start another meeting. You just need two to start a meeting. It's an impossible quest, this deprogramming of what parents and government and religion and society, we don't realize how programmed we are, but it manifests because we bring it into a fellowship that has really no organization. You know, I'm so old in recovery here that they had a period in AA in the late 80s where the overeaters were coming to our meeting and basically taking over the meeting. And finally, after a year or two, I think the foundation, the uh, general service board um, put out a dictum that they couldn't do that. And the, we had to stick to every topic had to be about alcoholism. Do you know how long that lasted? After a lot of scream outs and yelling. Some meetings still say it and no one adheres to it. Who could it enforce it? And if it gets too uncomfortable, you start a new meeting. Or the chairperson could bring it back. That's it. And another issue in our fellowship. We have really minimal concepts of what is the, the duty of a chairperson. Such codependency shows up at our meetings where we're afraid to tell somebody it's enough. Let the next person share. Or someone's just giving a total drunk along. They just came out of a porno just came to the meeting, totally drunk. We once had a man come into a meeting and he stood there yelling at us and yelling and uh, telling us how bad this program is and et cetera. And I asked him to sit down and he wouldn't. And I said, I can't make you stop what you're doing. Can't make you stop. But if you don't sit down and let another person have the chance, I will go into the next room and have a separate meeting there. He then left. We're autonomous. And what happens? is a lot of character defects show up. You start bad-mouthing the meeting. You start bad-mouthing the people. You start critiquing the people in that room. That's not our first tradition and step we were talking about is unity. 
If you're that uncomfortable, start a new meeting. Just hopefully you don't do it at the same time. And that's a classic statement in AA. When you have a disagreement in an AA meeting, all you need are two people and a coffee pot to start a new meeting. Next question. Thanks. And just a reminder for those that have their hand up to keep the uh, questions related to tradition four and step four. And let's close at uh, now for people to go to sleep and I'll stay here for further questions. This many people are in, in the Near East and the Far East and it's very, very late for them. And I did link to the recording, so anyone who wants to leave at the stage, or well, at any stage, can catch up later. Um, we can we can close with the, with a prayer if you want. Um, you go ahead, Daniel. Uh, yeah, the wee version of the Serenity Prayer. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will not ours be done. Thanks. So, um, yeah, we, ha we have a few questions in the chat and we'll get back to the hands shortly. Um, the, the first question here was around, uh, here it is. Um, it seems I heard Rick say something. I'm, I'm not sure which Rick he's talking about, possibly the, the, the AA sponsor. Uh, like the fourth step helps us to discover our values. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Rick was my sponsor for about four years. I never did understand it. <laughs> and I was just thinking about it the other day. I never did grasp it. <laughs> what can I tell you? I'm not a good one for this, just like I'm not real good with in the book where it talks about attitude. I get real concerned about words. Faith, trust, love, attitude, values, morality. And I need to be able to embrace that. There are some concepts I'm better at, other concepts I'm not. But Values and are about, for me, and hopefully what Rick was trying to get across, was our selfishness, self-centeredness. That is the root of our problem. So whenever I'm uncomfortable, the problems in me. And it's usually based on selfishness and self-centeredness, which is based on fear of I'm not enough, I can't get enough, I need to keep more, I might lose it. The, the 
what do addicts usually do? And this comes from the 12 and 12 in step four. We usually, because of that value, <laughs> which is the value for me would be selflessness. But because what do we do? We either blame others or we blame ourselves and get depressed. Or we get so self-righteous that we blame that. I didn't do anything. I just got drunk that night. And that's why that happened. Now, once we stop blaming, blaming. And I discussed this with someone this morning. Who it happened to be the religion they were in. And I was quoting their religion. He who casts the first stone. Who are we to blame anyone? We, the most tolerated, become the most intolerant. We stop blaming. And then we do our fourth column to see what was my problem in it. Now, as many of you know, when I was a teenager, my mother stabbed me with a big bread knife. Went to the emergency room, got sewed up. What was my role in that? My role is I'm still telling that story 70 years later. <laughs> the poor woman's been dead since probably their 19 years now. I keep telling the story. It doesn't exist except for a memory and a little scar I have now. My problem is I keep bringing it up. One day my AA sponsor said, oh, I once heard this woman give a talk and she said, um, her sponsor told her, don't you think it's new? It's time to buy some new suitcases, some new luggage. <laughs> we carry around the same suitcases over and over. Most of which, if not all of it, is merely a memory. And Sandy Beach is so good about these memories. They're just distorted. Out of proportion for your entire life, these memories, like hydrogen bomb clouds. We can never change the past. There is no such a thing as the past. Because when we remember the past, we're doing it in the present. So we're actually in the present, but we're trying to, we think we're reviewing the past.
Okay, next question. Okay, go ahead, Max. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Harvey. Uh, good to see you again. Um, a little bit of a discussion breaking out in, in a meeting here. Um, I just wanted your experience, strength, and hope. I think it has to do with the fourth tradition because um, I think it, it actually could possibly affect another, another group, perhaps. There's a new member um, who is never in SA, um, but was previously in an S program. I forget which one it was, whether it was SLA or SA, whatever it was. And there's a little bit of discussion whether uh, uh, a newcomer's meeting should be organized uh, for this person. Um, and I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that. What could it hurt? I don't know. See, these get everyone. We make big, big deals over everything almost. What's a big deal? Hey, we'd like you to uh, come to our uh, first step meeting. We're going to have a breakout now, and you could ask us some questions. I mean, that's done automatically from most of my years. The question isn't, are you in another fellowship? That's not our business. The question is, have you ever been to an SA meeting before? And if they say no, there's not, no, it's just common courtesy to have a introductory meeting where we read the sobriety definition. Etc. I I think, by the way, I've already been asked this question once today. <laughs> it's a very small world, and everyone becomes prima donnas. Everyone has an opinion. No, stuff like this anyway either gets done easily or gets brought up to the next business meeting to make a general approach. And, you know, we didn't do a whole lot on it about what is a true group conscience. Because lots of people who are making some of these discussions and concerns, a lot of them aren't even sober at the time of the meeting. Who counts for a group conscience? But no, it's what I said last week. This program is very difficult because codependency issues are such an issue here where everyone's afraid, everyone starts walking on eggs. Don't say this, don't do that. In AA, they say, take the cotton out of your mouth. I mean, out of your ears and put it in your mouth. 
You just walked in here. No one wants to hear from you yet. In a few weeks, you could start sharing. Not an essay. And who are we kidding? We are the toughest. The stuff we have done, the involvements we've had, the criminal behavior we might have had. And we treat everyone like a powder puff. So this is coming back to the fourth step, as well as the fourth tradition. What is the character defect that you're experiencing? Where all you have to do is take the guy out by yourself if there's a discussion. What are they going to hang you up? To go after the meeting, say, hey, since you're new here, I want to read to you some stuff, give you my number, see if there's anything you want to ask. I mean, what's the big deal? Why are there these discussions? I'll tell you why. It distracts, and most of those people are lusting out of their heads. Many of them aren't sober mentally. And it detours it. You get focused on issues like this that permit you not to have to deal with what's really going on in your own program. I guess the COVID's starting to disappear. (laughs) I'm getting back. I'll probably have to go to sleep for the next 12 hours. (laughs) Once I used a word or something that someone in the audience didn't like, and I said, who are we kidding? the words we have heard and the things we have done and we can't use certain words. There are groups in the fellowship where you can't even mention, in the past at least, a person's name, an actress's name. Who's made these rules? Is it a group conscience? God talking through, a loving God talking through the group conscience. And a lot of this can be found in the 12 concepts. So never believe what I say because I'm an addict. But look it up. There's a third thing. There are 12 steps. There are 12 traditions, and there are 12 concepts.
Next question, please. Go ahead, Rich. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Harvey. Great stuff here. I wanted to ask if there are any mental models that you would recommend to help us or help me mitigate either humility, ego, fear, character defects, something to, to research, something to, to look into, just, I don't know, something that maybe you've come across in your own research and your own experience that has helped you and maybe can, can help me as well. Yes. Thank you. Sure. Surrender to your sponsor. No book's going to teach us this. Reading about meditation will never be the same as meditating. It's the most difficult thing for our fellowship. Thank goodness we haven't even heard it once. Maybe people are feeling sorry for me that I'm not well. But the word struggle, <laughs> haven't heard it once. And struggle. We don't struggle ever because we surrender. Now, does that mean we're a cult? And we listen to the cult leader? No, it means we find someone that we respect their program. And when it comes to program issues, you have someone and you ask them. And then you surrender. Now, yesterday, um, I was at a meeting as a participant, and out of nowhere, a sponsor of, a sponsor of mine's name from like 25 years ago popped into my head. I hadn't thought about that guy in years and years. I really liked him, respected him. But then one day I found out he had lost his sobriety a year before. <laughs> you know, I had to get a new sponsor. <laughs> but he, <laughs> it, it wasn't as bad as a sponsor who relapsed, who ended up in prison for 33 years. Um, but we're just a bunch of sick people. <laughs> But it doesn't matter. What only matters is that I don't think I have the answer. Now, are you, am I saying we should be robots? No. It's interesting. We only have a question. Not only, but usually we have a question when we already know the answer. We just don't want to surrender to the answer. 
We already know it. It's, it's in here. It's this special feeling. So most of the things we do, you don't ask your, your sponsor, should I go to the bathroom? You know you need to go to the bathroom. You don't ask him, can I eat a meal now? No, you're, you have certain times you eat a meal. But if suddenly you did what I did, when I was about four or five years sober, I had never, as drunk with alcohol or with lust, I had never physically hurt my wife. But I was about five years sober in SA and AA. And one day I got so angry, I shook her, took both of her arms and just shook her. Yeah, that's the questions. What do you suggest I do? What do you think happened? What's this about? Can you help me? If you think these character defects disappear totally at all times, please teach me how to do it. I was sober 25 years and ended up cursing my daughter-in-law out. She didn't speak to me for three years. Would hardly let me see the kids. And when I did an inventory with my sponsor, it always comes the same thing. I was dishonest. I was putting up with her behavior for selfish reasons. I wanted, she wasn't my religion, and she was bringing up my, green, my grandchildren in my religion. And I was always afraid to say anything bad to her that she would start changing her mind. And my other daughter-in-laws would always say, how come you treat her so differently than us? And I had no idea until I exploded. And most of the explosions I've had during recovery have been always about the same thing, my self-dishonesty. Saying yes when I really meant no. My sponsor would say, I'd rather be hated for who I am than loved for who I'm not. Okay, let's do five more minutes. Um, okay, so one question that came up on the chat. Um, someone said, my sponsor says not to say my ego, but to say the ego. Makes sense to me. I've, I have so many of these old habits, they're difficult. But I'm trying to break a, another habit. 
where I'm not saying my wife. I'm not saying my children. No, I don't own my wife. She's a woman I chose each day as a friend to live with. But I don't own her. How can they be my children when the four children I have are between 53 and 58 years old? First of all, they're not even children. And to think I own them? I wish you well. <laughs> Trying to get kids to listen to you. So, yeah, that's nice. Go ahead, Jan. By the way, that's why these talks are invaluable to me. As I hear things that God wants me to hear through you. And I really like eliminating that word, my ego. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Harvey. Um, Harvey, I just want a clarification on something I wrote down. Um, uh, because there's so much wisdom in what you say. Sometimes I write slower than I, I can take things in. But what I, I want to just kind of hear what your opinion is on what I wrote was imposing my instincts unreasonably on others turns my natural instincts into character defects. Is that, would that be an accurate statement? Yes, that term... Uh, imposing it on them. Uh, in AA terminology, in big book, that's the self-will. I want what I want when I want it, and no matter what, I will browbeat that person, I will keep saying it until I convince them. So, the natural instinct is um, you know, I'm getting some irritability hearing what that person's saying. Um, but then comes the point. Once I recognize it, do I then say, and they're wrong, and I'm right. Once that happens, it's lost, and that's what usually happens. That's why it's such a waste of time to talk to people about religion and politics or sports. If you're for one team and someone else is for another team, sports team, you will never be able to convince them their team isn't. It's not better than yours. <laughs> Same thing, religion and politics. A lot of times it happens with our families, and we don't realize that every time we show them they're wrong, we've lowered their self-esteem one more peg. It makes them feel even less adequate. And usually, when if I don't make a big deal out of something, Nancy will come and make an amend to me about her behavior. 
But when I make a big deal, I become the identified person. There's my voice raises. I get irritable. And then she never has to deal with her side of the street. And so her Al-Anon sponsor used to tell her when I first came into the program to when I started yelling at her to go into the bathroom away from me and do the serenity prayer. And one day, there I was, I followed her to the bathroom. The door was closed and I'm yelling at her. And there I was, no one was there to respond. And I could see how insane I was. I was yelling at a door. God, wouldn't it be nice if we came in the program and all this stuff vanished? No, it's an impossible quest. And yet, it's beautiful. Enough. Thank you, everyone. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.